I want to take a moment to introduce, um, Matthew already did it once, but people, people we really like, we just keep introducing over and over again until till it sticks. But uh, I want to introduce a mentor and friend of mine, Pastor Daryl Ford from Icon Church. Daryl is one of the most accomplished people that I know. He could have been up here on keys, taking us home that way as well, but we decided to put him at the pulpit this morning to preach. But um, let's give a big Emmanuel welcome for Pastor Daryl Ford. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. As they, as they stated earlier, probably overstated, um, I have had the privilege of getting to know Micah, really, man, it's been, man, 10 years now since we've been friends. And we, uh, we moved here to plant a church back in 2011 and building relationships with other like-minded folks that really had a kingdom mindset. And Micah was definitely that person. And the Lord saw fit to allow for us to build some relationships with folks. You guys were still Trinity Eastside, and so I've been able to be a part of even some small part in that transition as you guys have moved on to this next stage. And it has been such a joy to even be invited in. I feel like I've been kind of a, a, a stepbrother in a way, a family member to you guys without having ever been here. And so I'm really thrilled to finally be here. We've driven by this building forever, even when we lived in Decatur. Never got a chance to come, and so I'm so thankful to be with you all. I mentioned that we planted uh, here in 2011, and I'll never forget when we first uh, started guest preaching for other churches. There was a church in Atlanta that asked me to come, and I brought my family, and my daughter was a lot younger than she is now. And she filled out a visitor card as if she wanted to be at that church. I don't know why, but she... And then the visitor card, you know, it would have a question, you know, prayer request that you have, and what is it that we can be praying for you? And she put down, please make my daddy a better preacher. So my daughter has always made me patently aware that I need prayer. So can we just go before the Lord together before we jump in? <laughs> Gracious and heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to sing your truths back to you and to each other and to ourselves. God, we, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to come and listen to your word, speak to us and uh, reshape us and mold us. And Father, we realize that in addition to all those things, what we need more than anything else is your spirit. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would take the words that we hear, the words that we say, the words that we sing, that you would use those words to melt us, mold us, shape us, break us, and remake us. We pray that you would do that now through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I... Uh, was told that, you know, I've, I've had the habit at our church of going a little bit longer, so I'm going to be very careful today <laughs> because I realize that things are on a very tight schedule, and uh, I respect that. Uh, one of the things that I love about where you, you all are in this text is thinking through the kingdom and what this kingdom ethos should look like. And it's, it's interesting. I spent some time in the military before going uh, into uh, business and then ministry, and one of the things that you learn, I was in the Air Force, and we learned a lot of good Air Force history, and one of the things that was always interesting to me is how we ever got to the place where we broke the, the, the sonic barrier, how we got to a place where we were able to start moving faster than the speed of sound. Before 1947, nothing went faster than the speed of sound. 
No aircraft could ever get there. They would try, and what would happen is you would, you would be in the cockpit and you would be trying to break the sound barrier. And as you got closer to the barrier, all of a sudden the, the, the instruments and the, 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 uh, the cockpit would start oscillating and vibrating really quickly and all the instrumentation would start to break down and all of a sudden the, 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 the uh, aircraft would start going opposite. So you would think, okay, if I want to go up, you'd pull the stick back and it would actually shoot you down. They couldn't figure out how to get to a place where they could surpass and transcend this seemingly uh, difficult, impossible obstacle. There was a man by the name of Charles Yeager. Chuck Yeager uh, tried something, and people had been saying, maybe we ought to try this, but no one uh, put it to the test. He said, hey, instead of doing what we normally would do when we get to that space where the vehicle starts to get out of control and we pull back to bring the nose up, let's do the opposite. Instead of pulling it back to go up, let's push it forward and see what happens. And that's exactly what ended up occurring. They ended up breaking past the sonic barrier because they realized they had to operate in an upside-down manner. The only way to get where they wanted to go was to function in a way opposite to the way that conventional wisdom would indicate. And it's interesting because in many ways, what Jesus does when he introduces his kingdom is he introduces it in this very upside-down way. You thought that you needed to pull back to go up. I'm telling you, go forward. In other words, in order to go up, you have to go down. In order to be able to go in one direction, in order to, if you want to be exalted, you see him say that all the time, humble yourself. So there's this upside-down kingdom. There's this almost backward, inside-out way of, of approaching life and approaching the kingdom that is a paradigm shift to all of us. It was a paradigm shift to the ancient folks in the ancient Middle East, and it's a paradigm shift to us today. When we look at this text, what I would say is we're seeing Jesus redefine what we all know to be this law of reciprocity. In many ways, reciprocity makes perfect sense. Reciprocity is uh, it's wise, it's prudent, it's a way to function, it makes sense when you're uh, interacting with other human beings, and it's very natural to reciprocate. But what we're going to see in this text is how Jesus even turns that on its head and makes us have to actually take a backwards approach to this law of reciprocity. So let's read in this text together Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 27 through 38. I've always found that it's helpful to have your Bible right to that text, and I did not. So how do I stall while doing this? Luke chapter 6. Beginning at verse 27. But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, Do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. 
do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn. Condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think we'd all agree it is very natural to reciprocate. It's very natural to expect reciprocation, right? It's, 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 it makes sense to help those who help you. It makes sense to, in, in a conventional sense, it makes sense to even want to hurt someone who hurts you, right? This, this classic, very uh, axiomatic phrase that we've all heard throughout our lives, do unto others as they do, uh, do unto you. It's simple justice. It's been hard-coded in, in, in legislation going back to the, the Code of Hammurabi way back in the 18th century B.C., specifying that idea of an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Reciprocity is natural. It's a common-sense way to order our lives. And in many ways, it's far more enlightened than the aggressive, selfish approach that many people favor today. Do unto others as they do unto you is kind of morphed into do unto others before they do to you, right? If I can anticipate that you may do a thing, let me beat you to the punch. As a matter of fact, in many ways, we are exalted, and though that kind of a virtue is extolled as wise and that kind of cutthroat business approach. And it's almost a form of social Darwinism in a way, too, because if, if I can just think that you might have an edge up on me, let me beat you to the punch. And somehow, we've, we've in, in many ways, syncretized that into what we think kingdom thinking should be and kingdom living should be. And Jesus actually says the opposite. I mean, we live in a world where wealthy, powerful uh, people can use that power and wealth to accumulate more power and wealth with little regard to the effect of other people. I, I read a, a quote from a famous, very wealthy rancher, and uh, he, he said something very interesting. He said, all I want is what's mine and whatever adjoins it. That, that we laugh, but we realize that has kind of been the, the way that we're kind of trained to be. Keep getting, keep moving, put yourself in a position where when it's time to get more, you can get more. Because if you don't get it, somebody else is going to get it. It's that scarcity mentality that kind of drives us. And so uh, this, in, in, in that way of thinking, it's very, we can understand that person who would, who would steal something of value, uh, we understand that when they do that, it's more difficult to understand, though, a person who would set fire to a church because of racial hatred or shoot a passerby for a quick thrill. Those things were like justice. We've got to make sure that that is punished. And in this kind of dog-eat-dog world, reciprocity seems very positive, positively enlightened. Right? It just makes it makes since it doesn't seek to inflict injury except in cases where injury is deserved, right? The goal of reciprocity ostensibly is, is fairness. It, it makes sense on the surface of it. The bad person suffers and the good person prospers the way it should be. And yet, Jesus tells us that this reciprocity is not kingdom behavior. Jesus tells us something different. He, he, he just, in the same way that God in earlier passages had moved beyond justice, moved from justice to mercy, didn't bypass justice, included justice, but took people to another level of real mercy, we're to do the same. 
How many times did we see Jesus say, it has been written, but I say unto you. You have known it this way, but I say it unto you. Because in many ways, the way you thought you understood the heart of our Father has been completely wrong. Let me help calibrate or recalibrate that for you. And so he shows us this idea of what reciprocity should look like. This hard lesson, the one that goes against the grain. It is unnatural. We can move beyond justice to mercy, but only through the grace of God. This is very opposite, and the only way it could be true of our hearts is if some type of something actually walks in and gets in the way and changes the way we typically operate, right? There is a default position that we and if something doesn't get in the way and change it, this is just the way we're going to function. And so when Jesus starts with, so I'm going to tell you this, love your enemies. Do you realize how much of a mind explosion that had to be? They're like, I'm sorry, Jesus, can you, uh, let, let me rub my ear again. What did you just say to me? Because there's no way in the world. Do you know what they're doing to us? Do you see what our enemies have done to people like us? How could you, Jesus, I know you, you, you're real innocent. And you might be a little naive right now because you're young. I don't know if you really understand how bad it is out here. And yet he looks at them and he says, with everything you know me to be thus far, I'm telling you, the heart of our Father says, love your enemies. Don't look for ways that you can actually get the advantage over your enemies first. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Now, it's interesting here, right? This first part, verse 27 Jesus begins this section by saying, love your enemies. And he repeats that admonition again in verse 35. But in between, he gives these very concrete examples to illustrate what he means. So he organizes these into two sets of three examples. In the first set of three, he says what? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And in the second of the three, he says, to him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. And from him who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your coat also. Give to everyone who asks you. Don't ask him to take away your goods to give them back again. Th this, is, this is interesting because these examples, in many ways, Jesus organizes them for emphasis. Right? He gives two sets of these three examples, and he establishes this rhythm that captures our attention. If you look at the first three, these behaviors that are outlined are very general in nature. They're very general. Hatred cursing, abuse. They manifest themselves in very different ways. And then the second set of behaviors, they're quite specific. Striking a cheek, taking a coat, taking your, your goods. And so this principle, hopefully we see, the principle love your enemies, we're supposed to understand almost instinctively that we have to apply this principle creatively and faithfully in relationship to our enemies. This, these examples Jesus gives us, they illustrate this, this word love is not having anything to do with feelings or emotions. You see that? Like these things, the way that he defines love, the way he qualifies love, he doesn't do it the way we are prone to do. That is, I'm going to define love by what I feel or what I don't feel. And Jesus is saying, your love is best typified by what you do or what you don't do. It doesn't mean that feelings aren't involved. It's not less than feelings, but it's much more than that. 
And so he, he gives these examples to show that the way that he's defining love is not focused on what we're feeling, but how we act. That's why he, when he calls us to love, he uses that famous Greek word that if you've been in church for any period of time, we've heard that word agape. That word agape, and it doesn't mean that we have to have the warm and fuzzy feelings uh, for those who mistreat us, but instead, we're supposed to act in a way that's calculated to benefit the other person. That's different. That's very different even than forbearance, right? Well, that person, I don't really deal with them. Uh, they've hurt my feelings, or I don't really like them, or there's something I have against them, whether legitimate or not. I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to do harm to them. Because that's oftentimes what we think. We think that peace and love just means I'm not slashing their, their Achilles, so, so I'm good, right? And, and what Jesus is showing is that real love for any person, especially the enemy, is your intentionality to seek their good. Now, if that's not backwards, I don't know what is. If someone has demonstrated animus toward you, how is it possible for you to, to begin to calculate ways that you could actually be for them and care for them and seek their best interest. How do you do that? Well, you don't on your own. You don't make a checklist for yourself and go, here are all the ways that I need to do this the right way and make sure that I can feel better about myself, about loving people that I don't normally love. Really, and we're going to see this, when we're overwhelmed by the ways that God has, have, has loved us, then we're able to disseminate that love to other people. If we struggle with loving our enemy, we have no idea how much we've been loved by God. And somehow we're failing to ascertain what that love really is. And it really creates more of a shackle on us, which is what we see how this leads us eventually to freedom when we really get this right. So you've got this principle of love in these six examples, and Jesus clearly establishes that we, his disciples, are not to allow anything or anyone else to set the agenda. What, what does that mean? That means that we don't wait to see what the other person will do before we decide what we will do. Do, do you see that? If, if you really get in this mindset of like, I'm going to love this person and seek their well-being and seek what's best for them, I'm going to do that regardless of what they might end up doing to me. So now... I don't have to sit and calculate and figure out, do I bob or do I weave this time? Which way do I hit them this time? Which way do I uh, find a way to maybe shame them so that it'll shut them down before they come my way? We don't actually have to do that. We don't even have to calculate that. We stop and go, what's going to be best for them? Let me move in that direction. Nor are we supposed to be trapped in this really messed up vicious cycle that someone else starts. Instead, we seize the initiative. We become the initiating actor by doing what? By loving, doing good, blessing, and praying. Now, look, I, I know in our culture, these types of behaviors, they seem weak. They seem weak in the face of hatred, in the face of violence. Many times we seek out leaders that don't talk like this. We want leaders that sound tough. We want leaders that sound like they cutthroat. We want leaders that's, that show us I'm going to go for the jugular, and it is in your best interest that I do so. And so that's what we praise. Not only is that what we praise, that's what we worship, that's what we defend, that's what we protect. That becomes what our idols look like. 
And Jesus is really trying to crush those idols here. So yes, they might seem weak in the face of hatred and violence, but Jesus transforms these. He demonstrates at the cross how powerful they can be. If you think that's weak, then just be honest and say you think Jesus is weak. Because what he demonstrated was not the way that this path of strength that you probably worship. And frankly, that's the kind of savior that many of the Jewish community was looking for. They were looking for somebody that was coming in, muscles flexed, ready to restore, make Israel great again, Mega, I don't know. <laughs> that's what they were looking for. That's the type of leader they were looking for. That's the type of savior they were looking for. I'm not trying to step on toes or pinkies, I promise. But that is, Jesus knows that that's where our heart wants. Jesus knows that that's the kind of leader we all would seek for, seek after, were it not for something else changing our hearts. So we do need something else, and we probably need to change whatever the decision-making matrix is that guides us into how we interact and what we look for and, and, and how we engage with one another, especially if we view one another as enemies. That's so why looking at Jesus on the cross is so important because what you never see is Jesus cursing his enemies. But he prayed for their forgiveness. And then what does Jesus do? He anchors this section with the command, as you would like people to do to you, do exactly so to them. Now we know this as what? The golden rule. And this rule had often been stated in negative form, right? Greek philosopher Philo put it this way, what you hate to suffer, do not do to anyone else. The Stoic philosopher said, what you do not wish to be done to yourself, do not do to any other. And you realize Jesus' positive statement of the rule expands this application considerably. We're not only to avoid behavior that we would not want to experience, but we are to practice behavior that we would want to experience. It's not just formed in the negative the way that typically philosophers would. This is formed very much in this positive kind of initiator type language. Practice behavior that we would want to experience. Why? This is more proactive. This is more dynamic. By the way, just so that you know, I love it. I, we, at our church, I love when people talk back. So if it's the baby that's talking back, let them keep talking. <laughs> Teach them how to say amen and, and shout a little bit. That's all right. <laughs> So Jesus moves in, and, and it's interesting because then with that paradigm in, in mind, look at where he goes next. He talks about love. He says, even sinners love those who love them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that for you? Think about the examples again here. He uses three examples. If you love those, if you do good to those, if you lend those. Jesus has been showing us how to respond to people who misuse us. He's been showing us how to respond to those who really don't mean us any real good. And now he speaks of people who treat us well. He does, I love that because he doesn't deny us the right to, to give good for good, but he denies us special credit for doing so. It's good, right? People are doing well, doing good for us. We should do the same. That's great. That's wonderful. And praise God for that. But we don't get extra brownie points for doing so. To put it the way my grandmother was saying, ain't nothing special about that. <laughs> everybody does that. And if everybody does it, it ain't special, is it? <laughs> so, so Jesus is making the point, stop, stop reading your press clippings, uh, press clippings and the self-aggrandizing pats on the back. Stop that for a minute. 
That's not the litmus test for whether or not you're following me. The litmus test is how you deal with the people who seem unlovable. That's how I know, that's how you will know if the Spirit is doing the work that he promised to do. So in these verses, Jesus shows us how to respond, right? He's talking about what it means, giving good for good. It's simply reciprocity. And reciprocity is not some kind of new kingdom behavior. Even people who don't follow Jesus give good for good. And as Christ's disciples, we give good whether we have received good or bad. You realize that is something that is extremely different from what conventional wisdom would say. One of the, I'll add this here, one of the things for a little while we were meeting, we were meeting in a theater, and I loved the, some of the pictures that that theater would give when we're meeting because I, mean, I remember one time we were, I was preaching and maybe it went long, I don't know, and, and as we, we get toward the end and the people who run the theater, they were getting ready to start movies, and the preview started showing while I was ending the sermon. Now, y'all, it wasn't crazy long, I promise, but we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, the, I'm not defensive, and all of a sudden, we're seeing, like, all these previews start going, and it was funny. Thankfully, there was nothing objectionable, <laughs> but, you know, I'm sitting, and I don't know what's behind me, so I'm just preaching, and all of a sudden, things are going by, things are going by, and we, made, we laughed about it, and later, we thought back and said, you know, there's something really beautiful about that picture, and here's why. Whenever we, back before COVID, and we were in movies and droves, and now it's not the same, but whenever there was a good movie, when there's a good movie that's coming out, what is it that makes you willing to go patronize that movie? You, you never just go, I mean, maybe you do, but most times, people don't just go, I'm bored, let's just randomly go into a theater, who cares what's playing? When I was young and you're bored, maybe. But for the most part, we're busy. And we want to know what we're going to go see. So what do you do? You look at a trailer. And you look at the trailer, and there's something about the trailer, some attribute or some actor that commends itself to you to, to the degree that you say, I need to patronize that movie. I want to take part. I want to benefit from the things that that attribute seems to be promising. So I do. I see the preview. Something about the preview makes me want to go. What's interesting is, as kingdom citizens... We are the preview. There's something about us, something about what God is doing in us that should make people go, if that's the movie that's coming, this world where people love their enemies, this world where people with great intentionality love and seek good of their enemies, sign me up for that movie. Sign me up. I want to be there. I want to see it. I don't know that I believe it's possible yet. But let me see. Let, let me just experience. Tell me more about it. That's, the way, that's when Jesus says, with love and kindness have I drawn thee. This is what he means. Listen, when the movie Sharknado came out, there wasn't nothing about that movie that commended itself to me. If that's your movie, grace and peace to you, I pray for your entertainment choices. That's not for me, right? Nothing about that trailer made me want to go see that. And let me tell you something. There's many times where examples and maybe even our lives has been more Sharknado than Citizen Kane for folks. I know that's an old deep cut movie. My mom loved that. Rosebud, yes. So, so when, you think, when you think through what we're called to be and how we're called to do it, there's a reason. It's not just a checklist, a bunch of items that we have to do just to make God happy. This works because this is the law of the kingdom. This is the way the kingdom works. When we're loved radically, then we love radically. 
we love in ways that, does, that do not make sense. We love in ways that defies conventional logic, which is why Jesus then moves us to this idea of being merciful, just as your father is merciful. So now he's helped us break the cycle of this calculation by giving good to good people. And now he's going, now that you've broken this down properly, now that you see that the what's true of your heart in these moments matters so much, be merciful the way your father is merciful. Here, Jesus gives us this theological foundation of non-reciprocal behavior. We are to love, we are to do good, and we are to act generously. Why? Not because we can get the right response back. Not because of some measurable objective that we can feel like it was worth the investment. We've got the right ROI. The return on investment is proper. I don't feel like I wasted my time. I'm good to go. No. The reason why we do this is because what does Jesus say? We will be children of the Most High. In other words, you do this because of where your identity is. We do this because this is who, hopefully, this is a part of our identity in Jesus. What it means to be grafted into Christ means now, I don't just, it's interesting, we love to say this and we'll sing this, but I don't know that we mean it every time. We say, I want to love what you love and hate what you hate. Jesus loves his enemies. Do you? Like, it's really important. And you know what what Jesus hates? He hates sin, which means he hates our hatred of our enemies. Do we hate what he hates? That's what it means to be a child of the Most High. You know, sometimes we'll say phrases like, we're all God's children. Well, the scripture says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they shall be called the sons of God. When we're led by his truth and led by his heart, now we function like his family. This is what Jesus is calling us to. He's not calling us to a bunch of checklists. He's calling us into this family ethos. And it's a beautiful picture because it's, in many ways, there's a blessing, and there is, when we see kind of the counterpart to this, uh, not the counterpart, but kind of like this um, heightened version of this sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, you see Jesus applying this word blessedness. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are you when you do these things. I always thought it was interesting, that word blessed, is this word makarios. It's this Greek word that honestly, when you look through ancient Greek uh, language and literature, it was, a la- it was a word that was never used of normal people. Normal human beings could never be makarios. It was, uh, there's another word that you're probably thinking of when we talk about bless, right? Speaking well of. It's this word eulogetos. It's where we get the word eulogy from, right? Good word. Anything that we can say good about God, that's, that's blessing God. If I say something good about you, that's blessing you. That's not the kind of blessing Jesus talks about when he says this is a blessing for us. What he means when he says blessing, this word makarios means this. It means this idea of having deep, abiding joy despite circumstances. And the idea was that no mere common man or woman could ever experience that. So they reserved this word for roughly three types of individuals or people. They reserved it for um, or beings. They reserved it for the gods, kind of Greek mythology. The idea was the gods could be makarios because no matter what's happening, they're transcendent. They're not imminent. They're transcendent. They, they, they do their thing. They hop in. They diddle-daddle, do whatever with the people, then they go back again. That's it. All kind of crazy myths and stories because of it. They're completely free from the cares of this world. And then the other idea is, the, the, to, to a smaller degree, the wealthy, the rich, they are almost treated like gods, and they are so removed from any concerns, they get to be makarios. And finally, the dead. So Jesus is basically, when you look at the Matthew version of this, Jesus is saying, here's how you can bless the way you thought it was impossible to be blessed. 
Here's how you can have the kind of joy, not happiness, because happiness is rooted in something happening, something presently going on, but here's how you can have abiding joy despite what's happening. Your enemy, despite Philly, uses you. Here's how you can continue to have joy and then lovingly engage them still, because you're blessed, makarios, regardless of what's happening here. When that happens, it's interesting because Jesus keeps moving us through. He says, here's the, here's the theological foundation. Here's the principle that moves you here. As children of the Most High, as blessed children of the Most High, our reward is great because we're heirs to the kingdom. We get to live under the king's roof. We get to eat at the king's table. We get to enter into the king's presence and to enjoy the king's protection. We become like the king, and we develop regal manners. If there was another way to t- to, for Jesus to say this, he would basically say, where are your table manners? We love to, and a little bit later, we'll be at the table. When we think about the picture of the table, there's this idea, yes, we are invited to the table, and we're so thankful for what it symbolizes and what it means and the grace that is dispensed whenever we do this. But also, just like any family, we need to bring our table manners. And Jesus is ultimately showing this is what it means. If you are a family member and you're at this table, then this is how you comport yourself. And finally, he says, don't judge. And you won't be judged. Don't condemn. You won't be condemned. This idea of judging, I think this verse often gets misconstrued and uh, misquoted sometimes and just misapplied. Because the idea then is, This isn't saying that it is not the job or the role of the believer to uh, work hard to ascertain what is good or what is evil or what is wise and what is foolish. We're supposed to do that. But, but, But here, this has to do with evaluating and forming opinions, whether positive or negative. It's different from condemnation. This idea of condemnation, much more negative, and it has to do with pronouncing guilt. That is something that we don't do. And there's a genuine tension here because we know in Matthew's gospel, he warns us about false prophets. And he says, by their fruits, you will know them. So there is some, to some degree, we're supposed to be watching and assessing and understanding and using the, 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 using the litmus test that God used to determine what is truly God's heart and what is not. But now, when we talk about what it means to condemn and pronounce judgment, that's different. We are supposed to address the reality of evil, and we're supposed to teach each other what it means to stand up for what is right. We have to teach our children to recognize right and wrong, and we have to avoid doing evil ourselves. And to do these things, we have to be able to identify good and evil. That involves making judgments. Living faithfully involves discernment. But I think the behavior that Jesus is prescribing has to do with the subtle ways that we discount each other. The subtle ways that we immediately start to uh, make assumptions of one another. Well, because I think they have this, you know, really not this secondary or tertiary theological position, I'm going to assume this about them. Because I think that they they, uh, might be a part of this particular camp or particular group, I'm going to assume that. Or because this person uh, ended up getting this promotion, I'm going to think about whatever particular groups there are and assume that's probably why they got that. There's these really bad, in, in many ways, assignment of motives that we do to one another that is complete judgment and is complete sin, frankly. And it's not rooted in love and it's not rooted. It's, and many times it's, our hearts are full of vitriol and venom, not grace and mercy. And the reason why that happens is because our hearts 
are wired for disproportionate justice. Our hearts are wired. What do I mean by that? If, if, if I'm frustrated with you, or I feel like you've done something wrong or untoward in any way, I want justice for you, but I want grace for me. I'm always going to be more upset with your sin against me than my sin against God and my sin against you. And I'm always going to judge you by your actions and judge myself by my motives. Because I believe, I wouldn't say it, but I believe in disproportionate justice. I want justice, and really, justice is far more than just punishment. That's a different sermon, but I, I, want, I want punishment for you. I want some kind of recompense for you, but I want grace and mercy for me. Now, our hearts are wired for disproportionate justice. Our laws are designed for proportionate justice. But Jesus calls us to disproportionate grace, disproportionate love. You realize that proportionate justice towards us isn't something, honestly, that we actually want. We say we do. Jesus bore God's vengeance for his enemies. To take revenge, we're saying that Jesus his bearing of God's justice isn't good enough. I want to add more to it than what Jesus did. Some of us don't want to wait for God's vengeance at times, too, myself included. Sometimes I just want to hasten God's vengeance a little bit. Want to bring it, how, how can I expedite this process, God? Because I know you know everything, but if you need some help, I got some ideas. And, and it's so easy to fall into that because we're broken and our sin goes there, so I want to see the vengeance meted out. Let me just get a peek. Just a little peek. Let me just see a little bit of that. But as counterintuitive and countercultural as this truth is, it's a very surprising way to, li to live, and people will be pretty surprised. Think about whatever feud you might be in right now. I know based on all the loving, cherubic faces in this room, none of y'all got feuds, I'm sure. I need y'all's help then because that ain't my testimony. <laughs> But think about the feuds that you may find yourself in. Think about what it look like, family, friends. Wouldn't someone with whom you've been embroiled in conflict be dumbfounded if you responded like this? Honestly. Wouldn't they, they probably would think, okay, what's your angle? <laughs> but if you were consistently living in, in that space, and that's where your heart orientation was, imagine what that would do. Imagine what that would mean. Grace, by its nature, is disproportionate. So grace, by its nature, is always a surprise. So I think the question that we need to be asking ourselves, and I hope you're asking yourself, is this. Have I experienced the grace of God, or do I only want him to vindicate me? Have I experienced the grace of God, or do I only want him to vindicate me? If you've been surprised by grace... The God, the God that we serve calls us to throw a party for everyone else, including our enemies. He basically says, respond to them the, the way you respond to someone else for whom you're throwing a party, loving them, wanting to see their good and seeing their best. Jesus didn't resist us. He turned the other cheek for us, the first blow to the cheek. And I wish we had time to walk through even what that means. There's some incredible things about what that turning the other cheek historically really meant. But it's a beautiful picture of what it means basically to say, don't be willing to lose relationship because you want to fight for your rights and your comfort. 
if I feel, listen, rights aren't bad. Freedom isn't bad. Certain issues of independence, not bad. But when we exalt it to an ultimate thing, it now becomes an idol. And guess what? You're free to look not like Jesus. You're free to love not like Jesus. And so when we see kind of what Jesus is saying here, he ultimately is showing us this idea of what it means to turn, this idea about what it means to love Jesus in such a way that we are completely uh, uh, changed and the way that we see each other changes. What I do with my rights, what I do with what it is that I think I want, what I do with, what I do with my vengeance Ultimately, I say, Lord, how do I steward this for your glory, and how do I steward this thing, whatever it is I'm feeling and dealing with, how do I steward in such a way that I'm seeking the benefit of my fellow image bearer? Because that's what real love looks like. This is why Paul can say, leave it to the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine. We are empowered not to take revenge, because God will take revenge for us. Justice will be served. But our goal is not even for there. Our goal is not even that. Our goal is like, Lord, let me be known for the people that I love and the ways that I love them. And whatever else happens, God, you deal with that. But I want to be so overwhelmed by your love and your grace for me that I can't do anything else but show radical love. A love that looks ridiculous. A love that just looks, some people just think, man, you, you don't have good sense. So my grandmother would say, baby, people going to think you're special in the head. Why, why, you, why would you care about them like that? But the truth of the matter is it should look off and it should look weird and it should make people go, that's weird. I don't understand that, but I, but I want to know more. So may we be a people. May we be a people that is broken by the ways in which we love disproportionately but also comforted by the fact that Jesus loved us while we were yet sinners. Jesus loves us while we don't love well, which means he's not done with us, which means he continues with us. And so if it's true that as long as we take breath, as long as we are living here, we are being sanctified, changed, as we said before, this breaking us of the things that need to be broken and remaking us to look more like him, love like him, lead like him, then praise God he's not done. Let's pray. We thank you. We thank you for the fact that you love us so much that you didn't wait for us to get it right. You don't wait for us to divine the tea leaves well enough to figure these things out on our own. God, you love us to meet us exactly where we are, but you love us too much to leave us there. And so, God, I pray that even in the midst of, as we, as we process these things, as we think through what we value, as we think through how, quick, how tightly we may hold to our rights at the expense of our neighbor, at the expense of our brother or our sister, God, I pray that you would convict us. But I pray you would convict us, not in a condemning way, but convict us with the comfort of your spirit to remind us and whisper into our ears, you see us, you're moving us into a different place, you love us, and you are not done with us. God, I pray that you would do this, not so that we can brag, not so that we can uh, extol all of our virtues, but so that your name would be made famous and that we would be the trailer to a movie, a blockbusting movie that everyone would want to attend. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. 
And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.